This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponco Chicken. Ponco Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponco is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponco if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender. Just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, uh, Midtown Alliance best taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponco is great and Ponco is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponco Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out chasemonspodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Welcome back to a... Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by Slate's Mark Stern. Good afternoon, sir. How are you doing? I'm uh, about as good as I can be under the circumstances. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm one of the uh, the states that is reopening in uh, a couple days. So it's oh, uh, interesting times right now, I would say. Uh, I'm sorry, I guess. I think. I think that's the right uh, sentiment. Um, I hope that you... Uh, are able to stay in your house even as other people are going back to the infection zones all around you at the urging of your, I presume, Republican governor. Yes, Brian Kemp is uh, quite Republican, but he's also... Oh, just, you're in Georgia. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Georgia. doubly sorry then. Well, I'm in Atlanta. Like, I'm downtown. I'm in... Um, I, I love where I live, and I love Georgia, and I love all that kind of stuff and where I'm from and all that kind of... It, like. That is that is fine. It's more of I uh I'm not surprised this is happening. I I think it's interesting that it's just there's different parts of the world that are or uh, parts of the country especially that are viewing this whole thing very differently and I understand why and like reading all the different pieces and I've tried to like really stay out of it. I just read as much as I possibly can and then 
form my own like haphazard opinions on things, but I still don't yeah. feel comfortable giving any kind of analysis to this kind of stuff, which is why I've kind of avoided just talking about it, is that I, I don't know, but I did know one thing, which was half of my state was not going to keep this going much longer anyway. So it's just more of like, I I don't really think this changes a lot. If you're not familiar with Georgia, people who are looking from the outside are like, oh, what are they doing? It's like, I I live here. I promise you, like I, I was just at a coffee shop down the street from my house this morning, dropping off my car. Like uh, the mechanics are all there. There are people out everywhere walking. They're giving up on social distancing. A lot of people are. I think there are a lot that will keep going, but Ultimately, I think people that were going to stay home for a while are going to continue staying home, and the people that were getting frustrated were going to get frustrated and do and start breaking the law. Like that was what, something I was just talking to some friends about. I was like, they're going to just start breaking the law. They're just not going to care. Like I saw a kid go through a skate park. Like he literally just went under the tape and just hopped down onto the 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 rink or whatever you call it. And it, uh, I was like, this is going to become more the norm. Like there's no way they're going to be able to police this when people just get fed up here. I. Half of the people will not do this, half will. And I I just, I don't know. That is my very smart political take on the Georgia stay-at-home order expiring on April 30th. That is that is my Georgia take, Mark. Yeah, so I um, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, um, oh, okay. and not far from the Georgia line. And the reason I said I was sorry that you're in Georgia is because your governor is probably only second only to Florida's Ron DeSantis in terms of coronavirus denialism. I know that uh, Governor Kemp only recently learned that asymptomatic people can still transmit the virus. Um, uh, Ron DeSantis was saying that asymptomatic people couldn't transmit the virus in March. He is, of course, trying to reopen the beaches and end the stay-at-home orders. Um, And it seems that Georgia and Florida and South Carolina are all together in deciding that it's just time to go ahead and uh, jump and see what happens. So I, um, I'm most familiar, aside from Atlanta, with the, the area of Georgia near Tallahassee, like Thomasville. And mm. I definitely, I can definitely see how those uh, communities would not want to continue to follow the stay-at-home orders at this stage and uh, perhaps not totally trust the science and uh, governmental warnings about the risk of infection. So Godspeed to you. Uh, I hope that, again, that you're able to stay safe. Um, Here in D.C., we're on total lockdown, and people really are respecting it, uh, in part because I think we have a lot of infections, and it's not nearly as bad as a place like New York, um, but it's not in any way under control, and we don't have political figures going out and claiming falsely that it's under control. And I think a lot of this has to do with the narrative that that governors and mayors set at the top. Um, And unlike Kemp, our, our mayor, Muriel Bowser, has been pretty clear that this is a real risk, and uh, it's not the kind of thing that you want to get. It's certainly not the flu or a cold. Um, so we're doing our best here, but we don't really see any uh, any time when the lockdown might end in the near future. Yeah, I mean, the mayor of Atlanta is already going against Kemp's orders, and it's, it's uncomfortable because he said that you can't, part of the order and what he was saying yesterday is that you can't put in place stricter measures than what he is doing at the end of this week so like yeah you had stricter measures in athens for instance or downtown atlanta you can't override him so a lot of mayors like savannah's mayor was upset about it and um i don't know it's all very complicated and it's a huge mess and it's uh 
I, I don't know. It makes me nervous. It's disconcerting. I I don't really know how it's going to play out. No one really does. I have my doubts that this is going to end well, but I mean, I'm hoping for the best. Uh, I guess that's all you can really do at this time. But I'm having you on this podcast today, Mark, because you wrote this piece in Slate, and I love Slate. I read it every day. And you wrote about this court decision that a lot of people are not, uh, maybe don't, don't know about yet, but it's a it's a big case. It's something I, I did not know Oregon and Louisiana were two states that still to this uh, point before Monday's ruling were able to convict felony crimes without a unanimous uh, verdict. I did not know this is a thing. And then you went into the the history of why those states and just why that um, system was put in place, um, going back to the Jim Crow laws and everything else. In your estimation, what did the Supreme Court decide on Monday? Let's start there. So six justices agreed that uh, whether you're being tried in state or federal courts, to be found guilty of a felony offense, uh, the jury has to reach a unanimous verdict, which means that every member of the jury has to agree that you are guilty. Uh, if one or two members say that you're, uh, you, you haven't been proved guilty, uh, then you can't be convicted. It has to be unanimous. And, and like you just said, um, that really only affects the laws in two states, Oregon and Louisiana. Those are the only two states that still allowed convictions by a 10 to 2 vote. And what the Supreme Court said is that the, the Constitution requires a trial by jury, and one of the fundamental components of a jury trial is and has always been been unanimity in the United States. And, and the justices go way back through history, back into, you know, the 1700s, and then even before then into the, you know, the ancient English traditions that we inherited, and basically found a mountain of evidence that when the framers gave us the right to a jury trial, they were enshrining in part uh, the right to have a unanimous verdict. So in, in those two states, Louisiana and Oregon, you can no longer be convicted by a split jury through a so-called split verdict. Uh, all of the jurors have to agree or else you will not be found guilty. In your findings, did you know about a lot of just the the white supremacy and just the the idea of why um states and federal are co- in the the courts uh in those states were using this as just like a racist pl- just ploy to ensure that um it, you wrote about this in the piece but i think it was something of along the lines of just a way to discredit or to silence um the increase in minority um decision making stuff like like what what all went into that it was just fascinating and very concerning yeah, so it's it's not a, a coincidence that these two states just so happen to enact these split jury laws because, you know, like I said, these are real outliers. This mm-hmm. is not the usual practice in the country um, and has not been. These are the only two states that did it. And the reasons why they did it are pretty clear. Uh, it's because uh, an increasing number of black people and in Oregon also religious minorities, so Jews, for instance, uh, and in Louisiana, mostly black people, are were participating in civic life after the Civil War and into the Progressive Era, right? You were seeing more and more rights uh, uh, provided to minorities, people who had traditionally been 
sort of cordoned off from uh, these exercises of civic duty like jury, like jury service. And uh, white, racist, bigoted lawmakers were not happy about that. And they were not happy about the fact that black people and religious minorities were serving on juries. And they were very uh, nervous that, uh, you know, one single black person on a jury in, say, Louisiana could thwart a conviction. And so the, the purpose of these laws, and the, 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 the people who wrote them were very clear about this. They did not try to hide it. The purpose was to dilute the influence of non-whites. That was the uh, phrase, dilute the influence, which is yeah, just, it makes on your jury. crawl. Exactly, because, you know, and it's easy to see how. Say, say there are 10 whites and, and two black people on a jury, uh, and the 10 whites vote to convict, and the, the two black jurors say, we aren't so sure, we're, we're, we're voting to acquit. Well, uh, in any other states, that would mean uh, a hung jury, potentially a mistrial, uh, no conviction. But thanks to these laws in Louisiana and Oregon, it would mean that the conviction goes through anyway. And so the court, I think, did a really good job talking about how, even though it's not integral to the constitutional question here, it is noteworthy that these laws were motivated by unconstitutional bias and bigotry, and that it is long past time to send them into the dustbin of history. You wrote that this is um, a time period where the Supreme Court is more divided than ever. Why, why do you think that? Well, um, I mean, part of that is just the statistical reality. So we, we've seen a higher number of uh, five to four decisions, of closely divided decisions uh, this term than we have in quite some time, more than a decade, actually. Um, and also even when the justices broadly agree, we're seeing these badly splintered opinions um, that, that sort of push a bunch of different justices into warring camps. So, for instance, um, you know, technically this decision that we're talking about right now was six to three. So six justices said these laws are unconstitutional, and three justices said they weren't. Um, but it produced a bunch of different opinions that a, a shifting coalition of justices joined. So Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, but then Justice Sotomayor wrote a concurring opinion. So did Justice Kavanaugh. So did Justice Thomas. They all had different theories about the law and the history here and the precedent. Uh, Justice Alito wrote his own dissent uh, that was joined by the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan, who is generally more liberal. Um, and, and so there's this deeply fragmented court where even though six justices can agree on the bottom line, they all have totally different theories about why, and they, they, they argue with each other about these secondary issues about, you know, respect for precedent and the role of racism in history and constitutional theory and interpretation. They can't help themselves from squabbling over all of these other issues, even when they agree. So it's really remarkable that a court that likes to present itself as, as pretty um, uh, sort of amiable and consensus-based can't even stop itself from splintering uh, into just sort of oblivion when it's a relatively easy decision and a supermajority of justices have signed on. Yeah, you emphasized this, and this is something that I hadn't really considered, was just the, the president dissents and just why they did that. How much of that was just uh, political theater and how much of that is just something that you touched on where 
they're sharpening their swords for the coming months of the abortion debate and certain things like that. How much of it uh, was it for, for them? Like, cause Roberts, I think dissented and a couple others. Um, what do you make of all of that? Uh, about them arguing over precedent? Yes. Uh, I mean, I absolutely think that this is sharpening swords for battles to come. And, um, you know, it's very clear that the five conservative justices on the court don't believe in a constitutional right to abortion access, for instance. And so the question is really whether any of those justices will stand by precedent and say, even though we didn't agree with this decision when it came down, you know, we didn't agree with Roe v. Wade in 1973, we will affirm it today because it is so entrenched in the law and so many people have come to rely on it and so on. In, in the Ramos decision, the, the jury decision, was about precedent, because in 1972, the court said that split juries were okay in state court, and uh, on Monday, the court overruled that decision. And so you have the justices saying, well, sometimes precedent matters a lot, sometimes it doesn't matter as much, sometimes it doesn't matter at all. When do we need to uh, stay faithful to the decisions of our predecessors? When should we strike a different course and correct an error in the law? Those are really weighty, important uh, matters that the court's going to face head-on when it deals with abortion rights and potentially gay rights and some other very hot-button questions coming. So it sounds like this is going to be, the, the fight for the Supreme Court is going to be the headline for this fall, is just with way you're describing the courts right now and just how divided it is, if just like if the the current president gets reelected, um, he's probably going to be able to keep stacking the courts and that changes things like what you're talking about, the um, the abortion debate and uh, very important debates for a lot of people. And I, I it's concerning because I think this is going to get ugly. And based on what uh, you're outlining in the piece, it, um, it is concerning. Has the, the president question been a, a thing for um, the majority of the time that you've been covering uh, the courts? Is this a new thing just because it's very divided that they're getting, they're squabbling over little things like that? Or is uh, the idea of precedence um, always been something that the Supreme Court has uh, thought very highly of? I mean, it's, it's always been a feature of the law. Uh, from the very beginning, our law has, has rested on this premise that the court has a duty to respect its past decisions. And, and it makes sense because you really don't want the law of the land changing every time a new person joins the court. It can't be, as Justice Elena Kagan has said, it can't be that every time there's a new justice, everything is up for grabs. And so there's always a, a balance or maybe a tension between respecting these decisions of the past and also getting the law right today. And I don't think that tension has ever been more obvious than it is now uh, because there's really not a swing vote on the court. You know, for a very long time, Justice Anthony Kennedy was sort of at the center of the court, and Justice Kennedy didn't really care that much about precedence. He would sometimes swing wildly to the right, but sometimes he would swing pretty far to the left as well. And so there was often kind of a, a, a squabble on both 
sides of the court on the left and the right to try to grab his vote. And as soon as he retired and got replaced with Justice Kavanaugh, who was much, much more conservative, um, the liberals changed their tactic a bit. And you see the liberals doing a lot more uh, to say, look, precedent is the most important thing that we've got going for us, basically. You know, we cannot let uh, a new justice change the law of the land just because he doesn't like old decisions. Uh, and we should stand by this court's past decisions so that the American people believe in us, so that we as an institution remain legitimate. Because, you know, if, if every time a new justice joins the court, the law changes, the court really starts to look like a legislature. It sort of looks like a super legislature that just passes judgment on whatever Congress does. And, and I think the justices start to look like not politicians in robes. And so now more than ever, you see the four liberal justices saying, we have to remain faithful and consistent to our precedents. We have to give the American people a reason to believe that we are practicing law, that we are honoring the Constitution, and that we aren't just writing our policy preferences into the law under the guise of judicial interpretation. So it's always been a thing, but it is now a really big thing because the justices are trying to convince each other, at least the liberal justices are trying to convince the conservatives, not to trash a bunch of liberal precedents just because they might have five votes to do so. Interesting. Um, and also kind of terrifying. Um, what happens in Oregon now? And Louisiana is a little bit different, but Oregon, like all these hundreds of convictions, maybe thousands you wrote, um, are all going to get overturned. And yeah, how do, what does that mean for all? Like, is, is that going to be a bunch of litigation? Is it going to just be an absolute mess for Oregon and Louisiana now? So not really. Um, it'll be a bit of a mess, but Louisiana had already... Uh, changed its law to require unanimous juries for crimes that were committed in 2019 or after. So if you were convicted of a, of a crime before 2019, uh, even if it's if, 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 it hap if the trial happened now, if the crime happened in, say, 2016, in Louisiana, you could still be convicted by a non-unanimous jury. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's, that's what the Supreme Court overturned in Louisiana. Oregon still had non-unanimous juries for every trial, for every crime, no matter when it was committed. And that has been shut down now, too. So the rule moving forward is very clear. It has to be un a unanimous jury, nothing less. Doesn't matter when the crime was committed. Doesn't matter if it's in state or federal court. It has to be unanimous. The question, and you just asked it, and it's every, on everyone's mind right now, is what happens to all of those thousands and thousands of people who have been convicted by non-unanimous juries in Oregon and Louisiana over the past century, right? They all sue. And <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, the answer is that most of them do not get relief, probably, but hmm. some of them do, which is a very strange and unsatisfying and confusing answer. But the court has made this distinction um, between uh, what's called, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but basically there's something called direct review. So you get convicted of a, of a crime, you appeal that through the courts, and eventually you appeal it to the Supreme Court, right? And the Supreme Court probably turns away your appeal because the court only hears, you know, a few dozen cases a year. It turns mm -hmm. away thousands. 
while you are appealing it, that's called direct review. And anyone who was convicted by a non-unanimous jury whose appeal is still on direct review as of Monday at like 10.02 a.m., they can get a new trial. No question, they get a new trial. Their verdict is voided. Their conviction is voided. Uh, It was illegitimate and unconstitutional. There is a totally different set of rules that applies to people who had already exhausted those appeals as of 10.02 on Monday morning when this decision came down. They have to go through this whole other set of basically jump through a whole other set of hoops um, because there's uh, this whole doctrine about retroactivity that's super messy and I won't get into it, but basically the majority and the concurrences yesterday um, strongly hinted that those people aren't going to get relief. That, they, you know, basically just to keep the law orderly and to maintain some respect for consistency and even-handedness, the people who had already exhausted their appeals they're out of luck. Their convictions aren't voided. It's only the people who had relatively recent convictions who are still appealing who will get a new trial. Is there anything following Ramos versus um, Louisiana that uh, you're monitoring right now that uh, is going to be a big case that's going to change uh, a lot? Something as big as um, universal, um, uh, just uh, unanimous uh, jury like is there anything are you, that you're looking at right now that... are you talking about in terms of like jury trials and criminal procedure yeah, something like that or anything bigger that uh you think might fit there well you know obviously we have some big cases that are coming down the pipeline from the supreme court this term um cases about abortion rights the ability of states to impose really stringent regulations on abortion clinics, um, the protections in federal civil rights law for LGBTQ employees, uh, the power of the president to uh, defy oversight by Congress, you know, a lot of really politically loaded questions for the court. Um, That is all going to come down the pipeline over the next couple of months, and we'll just have to deal with it. But the decision in Ramos actually raises a very interesting question um, about not just unanimity, but the number of people on a jury. So many decades ago, the Supreme Court said that you could have a criminal jury with as few as six people. And that was a very closely divided decision that has rankled many, many uh, criminal defense attorneys ever since and civil liberties advocates. And I think is possibly vulnerable in, in light of yesterday's decision. I mean, the court was very clear that it's willing to reconsider these criminal procedure uh, cases from the past. And if you can't have a split jury verdict when 10 members of the jury vote to convict you, why does it make sense that you can still have a conviction if you only have six members of a jury voting to convict you, right? Why is six out of six constitutional, but 10 out of 12 isn't? Mm. It's not really clear why. And I think this is something that the dissent highlighted. And I do think that's going to be a big question because many, 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 many states have six member juries. And this could really revolutionize that practice and potentially um, shut it down if the court decides that you have to have more than six maybe as many as 12 all right well this is this has been very informative this has been great mark i appreciate uh, you taking the time is there anything you would like to uh plug before you get out of here 
Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, I just want to say one quick thing that I don't think I answered. You asked if this is going to be a big issue in the fall election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we saw in 2016 was that Republicans care deeply about the courts and mm-hmm. Democrats just don't care that much about the courts. And I haven't seen that dynamic change materially over the last three years. So I do think that Republicans will care a lot about the courts in this election. I think Trump will talk about them a lot. But honestly, Democrats don't seem to be that invested in the courts, even though they're very important to the Democratic agenda. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the dynamic changes. But for now, I still don't see Democrats really waking up to the power of the courts and challenging Trump's takeover of the judiciary. It just doesn't seem to be happening. It's very odd because that seems like the because, I mean, I don't think it's any any secret that there's not a lot of enthusiasm about the Joe Biden nomination and something that I think would just, I, but then again, it's just like, I don't think a lot of young people are like, Oh, you know what? I wasn't in on Joe before, but now that uh, we've, we've talked about how important the Supreme court is for our future, we're going to vote and we're going to get out and we're going to get motivated. Now that I think about it and say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, I don't see a lot of people my age just being like, you know what, let's get out and vote for Joe because I need the Supreme Court to go my way in the next 40 years. I Now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a very huge motivating factor, but I think it, it should be, even if you're not big on Joe and you um, are fearful about where the country's going with certain things, then um, that's a, it's a good reason to still go out and vote and uh, make your voice heard, right? I, I certainly think so. And I think if, if Joe Biden could do one thing to energize his base uh, about the courts, it would be to put out a list like Donald Trump did of potential judicial nominees and to make it extremely diverse because Donald Trump has appointed almost exclusively straight white men to the courts. Um, He's actually really undone a lot of the diversity that not just Obama and Clinton, but even George W. Bush tried to to implement on the courts. They're increasingly looking not like the country that that we are today. Um, And so I think that if Biden could go out there and say, I want to appoint judges who, who... who reflects the country they serve and talk about some of these rising legal superstars in state judiciaries who are minorities and women and awesome and tell voters these are the kind of people that I will put on the courts, that might make Democrats excited because Democrats do seem to care about diversity and rightly so. So maybe, just maybe, that could be enough to get Democrats to care. But, you know, I'm only speculating here. They've, they've been pretty lackadaisical about the courts so far and it's it's hard to know what'll change then. Well, all we can do in this carries us all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. Hope for the best. I, I'm a little bit cynical and a little bit pessimistic, but you know what? I'm hoping for the best in all accounts. Mark, I appreciate the time. We can follow you on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. Keep up the great work. Um, we'll have to do this again soon. When uh, yeah, the, next, absolutely. the next great thing I, I read from you in Slate, I will, I will invite you back on. You have an open invitation, sir. Okay, thank you. Hang in there, and I hope to talk to you soon. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by Colin Taylor of Gamecock Central. Colin, good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing well, trying to find as much time, much as many things to do and time to pass while we're sitting in quarantine what is the uh what, what have you been doing the most what have you found yourself doing the most in the quarantine 
see, I, I, I do a lot of work and, and write. So mm. I, you know, I have a big old spreadsheet of TV shows and movies that I want to watch. So I'm slowly working my way down that. And, uh, finished Veep the other day and Marvelous Miss Maisel a couple of days ago. So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to watch next. Well, it was better between the two. I liked Veep a lot. Veep's good. Veep was really, really good. I really like. I, I mean, I the seasons are so short and the episodes are only 30 minutes, so you can get through, if you really want to binge it, I mean, a season, season and a half a day, which I loved. Yeah, I I like lost track of it after like two or three seasons. I'm on somewhere in between two and three. But um, And then Maisel is the one who is um, the Gilmore Girls creator did that one too, right? I think so. Um, but it's really funny. Um, season one and season three are really good. Season two is all right. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed I mean, all of it was really, really good. Good. All right, man. Well, I might have to check uh, check those out. Check back in on Veep and see what they're doing. Um, yeah. I just finished Castle Rock. Um, okay. I need to watch Castle that. Castle Rock. I'm really into the Stephen King stuff and all that uh, that jazz. But uh, pretty creepy. Pretty good. Um, like good. New- I have to check. Yeah, it's on Hulu. Definitely check it out. Okay. Um, my first question to you. Falcons fans have been obsessed with Javon Kinlaw for months now. Like, it's just been, we got to get him. We got to get Javon Kinlaw. We got to, we got to go after this dude. He is going to fit this for our defense. He fits on the defensive line. This guy's just a monster. Like he is going to be the right guy. If the Falcons stay at 16, like that's who everybody wanted for months. It was, it was interesting that he's just become like the favorite there. Why should Falcons fans want Javon Kinlaw uh, in the first round of the NFL draft? Um, because he's 6'6", 325 <laughs> pounds, and can, I mean, bench probably a small house at this point. I mean, he is like the prototypical, everything you want in a defensive lineman, he is that. Um, he's strong, he is big, he is, I mean, just massive human being. Um, he moves well for a defensive lineman. I mean, he made Alabama's offensive line when they played when South Carolina played Alabama this year, look absolutely pedestrian. He was the best player on that field that day, um, especially in the trenches. Uh, so, I mean, it's, he's the real deal. He is um, one of my all time favorite players. I go on to cover at South Carolina um, personality wise, but um, really hard worker uh, came into Carolina. I want to say, 330, 340 pounds, got all the way down to 300 and then built everything back up in muscle. I mean, so there's, I mean, not almost no ounce of fat, fat on him. Um, strong. I mean, he's everything you want at a defensive tackle. How does he differ from Clowney? Clowney is a little more fast twitch. Clowney was kind of an in type, um, rush the passer. Javon Kimmel is just a, a ruin your day kind of guy. I mean, a guy that you were going to go home in like ice bath and, um, a little more powerful, but Clowney was just freak of nat, you know, freak of nature athlete. Where Ken Law's probably less high profile of a position, playing inside instead of at defensive end, but um, both, I mean, just insanely, insanely talented human beings. What about Ken Law makes him so interesting to cover? Like you said, you like his personality. What about him specifically? Where you're just like, I, I like, I like talking to this guy. I mean, he's just. He's down to earth. I mean, he grew up, I mean, I don't know. His story has been kind of widely put out there, but I mean, he grew up homeless um, in kind of the Washington, D.C. area. I want to say his uh, mom was from Barbados or somewhere in the Caribbean and um, did just bounce around from living rooms and friends' houses and was homeless. And I mean, just this true rags to riches kind of story. 
I mean, that in and of itself is just something that you can talk to him about for hours. Um, but he's so funny. He's down to earth. He makes jokes. I mean, there's, I mean, been times after one of the games, he was like, um, he says he likes to mirror his personality after a dog. And so we asked him a dog and he said a chihuahua. <laughs> so the running, so the running joke for the entirety of his career after that, that was, I think his junior year or sophomore year, whatever it was, the running joke after that was how, how he played that day compared to a dog. I mean, he's just, he's fun. He's lively. And I mean, he doesn't take it too seriously away from the field, which is something, I mean, that, that helps kind of team morale and just being around the media. I mean, he was one of our favorites to talk to every week. What in your estimation has Will Muschamp gotten right since coming to South Carolina and what has he gotten wrong? I mean, Will's done, I know he gets a lot of grief, but Will's done a lot of good. Um, he came into a situation where it was completely devoid of talent, um, completely devoid of any kind of structure, stability in the program. And um, his first year or two did a lot to really establish some of that set up a recruiting kind of board, recruiting structure, recruiting department, creative the creative media department, which South Carolina really didn't have before him, um, really amped up all the visual stuff, some stuff um, in terms of just edits and graphics they're putting out to the social media, they're putting out to recruits and things like that. So he's done a lot there and, and he's recruited really well. Um, he's pulled in, I mean, his last two classes have been deep and good. So, I mean, he's recruiting to the level that Will Muschamp and, and is known to recruit. Um, it's just the on-field. It's just the development stuff. I think he um, he hired Jeff Dillman as his strength and conditioning coach the first time, and um, that kind of backfired, and he had to fire Dillman after this year and hire someone else, and uh, guys were getting injured a little too often. And I mean, the big one is offensive coordinator. He hasn't really been able to have a stable offensive coordinator that knows how to consistently put up points um, on a week-in, week-out basis, and um, that's kind of been their downfall. They've kind of put together some solid defensive years, um, this year being one of them, and um, just haven't been able to have the kind of offense that you need to win games in the SEC on a consistent, consistent basis. And when they do, injuries have ravaged the entire team. And it's interesting, too, because McClendon um, came with him, and McClendon uh, just lost play-calling duties, uh, similar to a Coley situation at Georgia down the way. But um, you bring in Bobo, and I think McClendon actually looks at Bobo as like his mentor. So was that part of the reason that he stayed on staff? Because I gotta, I gotta think when you lose play calling duties like that and you get demoted, and um, I think he's coaching wide receivers again there. Um, you you kind of just like want a fresh start somewhere else, where it's just like it didn't work out here. I'm gonna go try and see if I can OC job somewhere else. Were you surprised that he stayed on when Bobo got uh, the OC job? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Um, he actually just took the job uh, reportedly um, with Oregon as their receivers coach after I think they gave it a try after spring. And um, oh, is he just gone? Said he, you know, yeah, he, he's gone. Um, oh, okay. uh, he, they haven't. It hasn't been officially announced by Oregon yet, but um, we've been kind of confirmed on our end that um, McClendon's taken the I think the wide receiver and passing game coordinator job up there at Oregon. Um, just to kind of, I think to get a fresh start and yeah, really, I mean, it, it's no, it, I mean, it's not fun to, when you get demoted like that to, you know, even though he, I don't know if he played for Bobo, but coached under Mike Bobo at Georgia, um, it looks up to him. It's still a situation where you're walking past your office every day. You're in meetings every day. And instead of leading him, you're one of the, you know, other six offensive assistants or five offensive assistants they have. Um, I was a little shocked that he stayed on when he did. I know he was, um, 
interviewing for other jobs in the off season before spring's practice started, uh, ultimately didn't get him, which is why I think he stayed. But, um, at the start, yeah, I was a little surprised that he decided to stick around for as long as he did. So if you had to describe what specifically has just gone wrong with the offense in the last champ era, what has it been from your perspective? That's really just been the, the, some of what you've seen that's just like, it, this is why they're struggling. This is why this is not working. Yeah, I think that, I mean, talent had a little bit to do with it. I mean, they had some talent on that team, but it was never really at the offensive line spot. Um, and I mean, in the SEC, you're not going to win without a good offensive line. Um, it's, it's, they've upgraded position, but a lot of those guys were young last year. Um, the offensive line's a key part. They haven't been able to be really healthy for a lot of it. Um, and that falls back on the strength and conditioning program. Um, Debo Samuel stayed pretty much healthy the entire time. Brian Edwards dealt with a knee injury. Um, Rico Dowdle, who was, uh, their running back for the last four years, um, never was fully healthy, never put together a fully healthy season in South Carolina. Um, and then Jake Bentley obviously gets hurt this year and it pretty much derails everything that they were trying to do, having to put Ryan Holinsky in as a freshman. So, I mean, they had to upgrade the offensive line position. Um, I still think they're in the process of doing that. Um, and then after that, it's just managing injuries and having a stable, consistent play caller. And um, that's kind of the biggest thing that hinder them is dealing with injuries, um, not really having the talent um, consistently across the board, depth-wise, um, offensively, and then not having a really seasoned and, and consistent play caller uh, up in the booth, whether that's Kurt Roper or you know, Brian McClendon. Are you excited about Bobo? Is it an exciting hire uh, for South Carolina fans, or for you, is it is there a difference? Like, what are what are you thinking? What are your expectations for this offense this fall um, in year one, or is it going to take some time? Uh, what do fans uh, think about Bobo being in South Carolina? I mean, when it first happened, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it's the perfect must-champ hire. A uh, guy with SEC ties from Georgia, um, knows how to recruit, is is the presumed safe hire. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of came on board with Muschamp's line of thinking and thinking about it. And I think the fans have as, as well. Um, they weren't necessarily fired up about it when it first happened, but the more they heard him talk and the more they heard him um, and, and thought about it, the more you kind of realize that this is a team with a young quarterback, a young receiver group, um, an offensive line that obviously needs a little bit of work and a, a running back room with three scholarship guys right now. Um, that's, you're going to need a veteran guy. Well, you're you're going to need a guy. That, one of those guys. Who's that? I mean, uh, oh, Marshall. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get to him. I mean, he's he's the real the deal, highest but, recruit you know. since Lattimore, right? Yeah. Um. But yeah. So you need a veteran guy. Um. You know, Marshawn Lloyd's great, and he's going to play a big, big role in this offense, and I think he has a chance to be pretty dang special. Um. But I think fans are really coming along with Bobo, and I think he's the kind of thing that he you're going to need going forward now. Do I think all of their issues get fixed year one? Probably not. I think you need to see some serious, serious improvement, but I don't think it all gets fixed. Um, and hopefully, you, if you're Will Muschamp, you hope it's enough of – you hope that you show enough to keep your job for another year to, to really improve in year two under Mike Bobo. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Do you think that Muschamp, like, is there a number that he has to hit this year to keep his job, or do you think it, his job's actually in jeopardy after this year? I think his job's in jeopardy. Um, I, I think that he knows that this is a pretty pivotal year for him. Um, when you haven't, when you started your, you know, 
tenure at South Carolina, winning nine games your second year, and then you go, I think, seven wins and then four wins, you need to show an uptick in improvement. Um, you can't fall back on injuries anymore. You can't fall back on certain, you know, t- a talent devoid of talent because you've been there now five years. You've had the chance to get your guys in there. Um, I think he knows this is a put up or shut up year for him. Um, numbers wise, in terms of wins, I don't know what that looks like. I know fans, um, if I were a fan, I would, if you're South Carolina, the expectation is to get to a bowl game every year. If you can get to a bowl game, win six or seven games, upset a Clemson, upset a Georgia, um, then and, and see signs of improvement. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, right? The nation's toughest schedule on the, you know, uh, to do it, but if you could do something like that, get to a bowl game. If you win, hell, you could lose. You know, you could win seven or eight games and even lose those. But if you you win seven or eight, that shows signs of improvement. If the offense makes some strides, then you feel good about where you're heading into year six. But if you you know you go four and eight or you go five and seven again, um, and you can't get over a hump and beat. Uh, you know, one of your rivals, whether that's a Tennessee, whether that's a Florida, a Georgia, a Clemson. Um, yeah, like I said, I mean, e- easier said than done. If you if you can do some of that, then it shows progress. But if not, then that seat gets really, really hot. What did you see from uh, Ryan Helensky last year? Were you Do you think this is someone that can lead this team for the next two years? Is he someone that could be a really good player? Can he be the next Steven Garcia? that uh, we've all been waiting for. Um, what is his upside? I mean, he's got some upside. He's got the arm talent. Um, do I think fan, I think fans want the on-field Steven Garcia. I don't know if they want the off-field Steven Garcia. Um, uh, you got to have both. He, Sorry, that's the rules. Yeah, no, trust me. I love that Steven Garcia. That's, I mean, prime, you know, if, if you're drawing up the epitome of a college football player, it's Steven Garcia. Best quarterback um, in South Carolina history. Oh yeah. I mean, just in terms of personality and everything else, um, uh, with Ryan, he needs to be more accurate with the football, um, needs to really kind of open up. And I mean, I think he averages less than six yards per attempt last year. Um, so that needs to improve, but the arm talents there, the mental acuities there, it's just a matter of getting comfortable in the system, um, and realizing just how fast they're playing. And that's when, this jump between year one and year two is where I think you're going to realize if Ryan Flinsky is the answer at quarterback, because if it starts to slow down and he starts making plays and really running the offense, then you feel good about where you are at the position. Um, but yeah, I've seen, I, I mean, he, he lit up Alabama for over 300 yards, um, played well at times. Um, his just, he got hurt against Georgia. I don't think he was ever the same after that. Um, so getting a fully healthy Ryan Flinsky back, I think will, kind of help South Carolina's offense to really show exactly what, you know, he is. And, and he's got the talent to be, do I think he's a Heisen winner at South Carolina? Probably not, but he's got the talent to, you know, win eight games a year, win nine games a year and really give other good teams run for their monies. Does Marshawn Lloyd have Heisman hype? Ooh, um, as a freshman, the way they're talking about him. Sure. I mean, he's got, he's every bit, I mean, talent wise as Marcus Lattimore. I mean, He's real deal. smaller. Uh, yeah, a lot short. smaller. Like he's a short yeah. dude. He's like what, five nine? Five nine, something like that, yeah. five ten. Um, but I mean, he's quicker than Lattimore. Uh Lattimore was kind of that power guy that was gonna yeah. run you over. And uh but Marshawn, I mean, we got to watch when we were watching a little bit of practice before everything got suspended. I mean, he was lightning quick and I mean, just did some special stuff on the field and 
um, talking to all the coaches and, and the players that have had to go against him. I mean, he's making, you know, fourth year juniors, fifth year seniors look stupid on the football field. So there's a lot of hype coming in with Marshawn Lloyd, uh, rightfully so. And if he continues on this development, I mean, all SECs of possibility. And I mean, there's obviously Heisman hope whenever you're bringing in a five-star kid. So um, sure, why not? As, you know, before he even takes his first official snap, let's let's go ahead and put the Heisman hope on him. Yeah, we don't even know when that first uh, official snap will actually be. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you think there's a way they catch Florida and Georgia? And I think Tennessee's coming now. Like Tennessee's literally starting all five-star offensive linemen uh this year which is just insane but um for me just a financial and just institution building situation can they get to that level where they're consistent where they have the money and the resources to be sec east contenders every single year or do they have to continue to be like where six and six seven and five for a year or two and then maybe a 10 to 11 and one year where everything goes right and then back to eight and four seven and five whatever for a couple of years like is there a way out of that or is that how south carolina fans should view this program i mean i think that's you always want to be the georges and the floors of the world where you're going to be contending but i just don't think South Carolina is at that point yet. They're making strides. They're really upgrading their facilities. They're really upgrading um, their game day atmosphere, and they're trying to get to that point. But they have the financial resources to do it. It's just a matter of establishing some tradition, establishing some other things that Georgia and Florida and Tennessee already have. Um, and then that takes time. And I think that if you're South Carolina – you know, if everything goes right and you win 10 games and 11 games, that's an elite year. That's a great year for you. Um, but normally you're, when you look at the history of South Carolina, I mean, you, you haven't always gone to a bowl game. You haven't been that good to start in the, when you came into the SEC. And if you're winning seven, eight, nine games a year with a bowl win, that should be pretty, that should be good for you. If you're playing on or around New Year's Day, that should be a very successful season for South Carolina. And then with the hope of if Florida has a down year, if Georgia has a down year, then you really swoop in and, and contend for that East title, which is what they did, obviously, in, in um, 2011, 12, and 13. Um, that should be what you're, you're, you strive to be as a program. South Carolina started three freshmen at the nickel spot, uh, or freshmen at the nickel spot in three straight years, which I thought was interesting. Are you at all concerned with uh, the defense and uh, what they're looking at? Because it looks like they're – they're most set on the edge um, that there should be good pass rushers there. Uh, what what are you worried about with the defense? Because a lot of the conversation about South Carolina season, it's about Helensky, it's about Lloyd, it's about um, Mike Bobo. Not a lot of stuff about the defense. Yeah, um, I think the defense should be pretty good. Um, the The biggest issue, obviously, is dealing with the loss of Kinlaw. Um, they have some pieces there that they really like. Five stars, Zach Pickens. Um, who's going to be a sophomore next year. Uh, they really like, really think he has a um, chance to be pretty special. But the weak link for the secondary the last two or three years has always been the safety spot. So they're hoping some of these young freshman cornerbacks that they've brought in can step up and they can move some of their corners that are probably better suited for safety back there, like an Israel Mukwamu, who I think is probably better suited for safety. Um, move him back there um, because that's just been a weak spot. Um, if they can figure out the safety issue, it should be a pretty good defense because uh, they have the talent and the depth on the defensive line. They have a really good Mike linebacker, Ernest Jones. Um, JC Horn is, I mean, a 
day one, day two type of talent um, at corner. Uh, Jamie Robinson's obviously had a freshman All-American year last year. But if they can shore up the back end, which has been their problem, then things will start to click well defensively for them. But until then, it's still going to it's going to look a lot like what last year looked like, where they gave up a few big plays but held their own at times and kind of a hot and cold nature of things. How do fans look back at the Steve Spurrier era? Because there's a really good piece. Did you read that in The Athletic about Steve Spurrier a few months back? Um, and mm-hmm, losing yeah. the team and just like players just stopped going to chapel. Like he encouraged them. And then when he knew it was over, it's like nobody came and he was like, it was a big deal to me, blah, blah, blah. And no one came. Um, how do fans look back at the Steve Spurrier era and how do you look back at it? It's interesting. Um, I think fans recognize the good and the bad of it. I think the smart fans do. Um, they realize that Spurrier took them to these heights that they had, I mean, never seen before at the university. I mean, three straight 11 win years. I mean, you had talent among talent among talent, but they also realize how bad of a shape he left it in because he just stopped trying. I mean, you call it what it is. I mean, he, he just stopped recruiting. He stopped caring. And um, I think fans realize that there is good and there's bad. Um, I, I certainly realized that I was a student in South Carolina. My freshman year was the last of the, the 11 win years. Um, so I started like that, and then I ended with a six and six Will Muschamp team that lost in the Birmingham Bowl. So they understand where Spurrier left it um, and the kind of rebuild process it's going to take. Uh, but they also understand that he gave them some of the best years of their life. And there's fans that adore him, and there are fans that are hate him. But I think the majority of fans, reasonable fans, like him, but understand their that love and admiration for him also comes with a grain of salt because of how poor of a shape he left it in. Last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. Um, is Ortrey Smith a real person? Yeah, I've asked myself the same question the last couple of years. Yes, he is a real person. Um, just battling some injuries, but hopefully he's, he's back because when he was on, he was on. I cannot believe that's real. Like, it's I, I like just because when I'm going through stuff and I'm just a huge sports nerd and everything else, that I'm looking at different things and I'm just like, Ortrey. There's no way this yeah. is real. There's no way this is real. <laughs> yep. Or Trey. Yep. I love it. Or Trey. So he's real. You've seen him with your two yeah. eyes. You've One, seen him. 100%, 100% real and makes me, I mean, I'm 6'2", 240 and makes me look small. So very, yeah, very real of a person. Very real and a very grown-ass man is what you're saying. Yes, 100%. 100%. Interesting, interesting. All right, man. Well, this has been great. Um, what can we check out from you this week on uh, Game uh, Gamecock Central? Uh, so we got a lot of stuff leading up to the draft. Uh, obviously, um, a lot of recruiting stuff that we cover, football, basketball, and some baseball stuff uh, since it's the SEC. So uh, plenty of stuff on Kinlaw and um, all this draft content that's coming out before, um, obviously, Thursday's first round. Um, and then some basketball stuff is South Carolina kind of continuing to recruit and kind of the fallout from all the COVID-19 stuff. All right, go do that. Um, is Martin the South Carolina basketball coach in two years. Yeah, why not? I think so. There you go. All right. Optimism. Yeah. There you, how about little, this? Little Is Muschamp and Martin the head coach of the top two programs Ooh. in the next two years? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. That's, Collins that's, predicting that's one of the two will not be the head coach yeah. of their uh, program. And he's already said one of them will, so I wonder which yeah. one is not going to be the one yeah. there. <laughs> 
Yeah, no comment. I'll plead the fifth. I'll plead, plead the fifth on that one. All right, all right. Well, hopefully Ray Tanner's not listening. Um, yeah, Colin, this has been great. I appreciate the time. Uh, we will have to do this again soon, man. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Colin. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, if you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow, and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chase thomas writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. You could go to chase thomaspodcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need. Um, and all of my writing that, uh, I'm doing fairly often these days, um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But, uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And, uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.